So I want to go a little bit deeper into uh, the Brahma Vihara that we've been exploring today, the equanimity. And uh, this morning, Mark gave a wonderful uh, introduction and guided meditation. And I think that from what some people said, you know, there was really, people really got a flavor of the equanimity, like a taste, which is, you know, we've been, we've called this the flavors of kindness. And so getting a flavor, getting a taste, you know, maybe we're not, you know, getting the full banquet, uh, but we're getting these tastes. And, and it seemed that that happened for many people this morning. You're just like, what is this? What is this equanimity? Because it's, it's, it's something that we can deepen into more and more. Mark said, you know, he really pointed out this morning that life is messy. You know, life is messy. And he said, this is it. You know, this is it. This is how it is. You know, and equanimity is that really coming into to terms with the way things are, really the way things are. And it's, it, life is messy. And life, there is also quite a lot of suffering in this life. That was the first noble uh, uh, truth, the the first thing that the Buddha said we needed to pay attention to and understand is that there is suffering in this life. It's not an accident. (laughs) It's not something that we can uh, sidestep. There is suffering, there is birth, there is aging, there is sickness, there is death. All that is painful, it's suffering. How do we come to terms with that? This is really what these practices help us and support us in, in being in this life and dealing with the realities of this life so that we don't run away or shut down or hide away or all different kinds of things that we can actually engage in to avoid, uh, avoid uh, the, the realities of this life. Today and yesterday, I was hearing many people's stories, you know, in our meetings, in our individual meetings, and and then the things people have shared in the hall as well. And my heart is is so soft. My heart is so open from hearing uh, all that people are dealing with and going through. Uh, there's so much sorrow, you know. There's so much sorrow in our lives. It's like each person here carries some burden of sorrow. It's, it's, it's impossible to get away from that. There's this beautiful, beautiful statement by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow that I like to reflect on. He said, If we could read the secret history of our enemies, we should find in each person's life sorrow and suffering enough to disarm all hostility if we could read the secret history of our enemies, we should find in each person's life sorrow and suffering enough to disarm all hostility. And there's a way that when we begin to actually kind of breathe and soften a bit more and open to the reality of what's actually going on, our heart can begin to dis, uh, dismantle the barriers, dismantle the defenses, and start to share and connect in that which all of us are experiencing. What do we have over there? Wasp. A wasp, okay. 
we're going to we're going to uh, have some compassionate action for the wasp, which is this bug bazooka, which somebody thought was actually a way to annihilate the insects. Actually, it's a way to <laughs> to um, help them. <laughs> Did we get it? We're going to take a compassion pause here for a moment. We'll do what we can to not harm the wasp. (laughs) This is our um, expression of our own kindness here. We don't want to get hurt by the wasp, so we need to remove the wasp, (laughs) but not hurt it. So this beautiful kind of beginning to reflect on the way that we can uh, begin to dismantle the barriers over our heart. One of the equanimity phrases is, whether I understand it or not, things are unfolding according to a natural law. And I love that particular phrase because it's whether I understand it or not, things are unfolding according to a natural law. The natural law is the Dharma. The Dharma is another uh, word for the law or the order or the way things are, uh, an intelligence that's much, much greater, vaster than this small little mind can understand. We can't conceptualize the vastness of what is actually going on here, the mystery of what goes on here. And yet what happens is not random. We think sometimes that there are just random things happening, that the Dharma somehow is random, but but the Dharma is order, it's harmony. It's law, it's laws, the laws of things, the laws, the the way the laws unfold. It's not random. And and one of the things in the ancient, ancient teachings is the law of cause and effect, the laws of causes and conditions, that this comes about because of that. There are always causes for something to come into manifestation. Nothing comes into birth, nothing gets born unless there is some condition or cause for that to, to, to be born. It's not a random universe. And as we start to feel and sense the way things are, we can sense more and understand more of this unfolding of these causes and conditions. Someone today um, was talking about her experience and... Um, Probably many of you are aware of the, the massive fire that was happening in Yosemite National Park uh, just a month or so ago. And um, many, many uh, thousands of acres of uh, beautiful land was destroyed. And, um, you know, we've been talking about the impact of climate change here on this retreat. And one of the things that seems to be happening is that there's more fires. And the reason there's more fires is because the weather patterns have been disrupted. And so here in the, in the West, we haven't had the snowfall and the rainfall that we usually have when the, when the air flows move in a certain way. So the last winter was very, very dry. There was hardly any snow. And so the land is much, much drier. 
And so, you know, just some kind of a spark or some kind of, you know, lightning or whatever can just light up the, 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 the wild grass. And so this, this, this fire just took over. And this woman today was talking about her deep grief because for, for generations in her family, they've been going to a particular camp there, uh, Tuolumne Camp. I don't know if Marx might have been at that camp. But it's a camp that's owned by the city of Berkeley, and it's been a family camp for over 90 years. There's thousands, thousands of people and families that go there every year, and it's right on the uh, edge of, a, of the Tuolumne River, and uh, cabins and campgrounds and a family. And it just was destroyed, completely destroyed. And this woman was actually there with her family two weeks before it was destroyed. And it was so interesting when she spoke of it, and, you know, deep, deep grief about it as well, because, you know, this, her, she's had five generations of her family, you know, have been going there. Families have been going there. And the tremendous loss, it's almost like it becomes part of you. You know, these kinds of memories, these kinds of experiences that we've had over generations, they, they're kind of ancestral almost. They're in our blood, they're in our bones. And then just to have that gone, it's gone. And when she spoke about being there just a few weeks before, it was almost like a sacrament, you know? It was almost like a sacred journey that she, she and her family had a chance to be on the land before it was taken, you know, that one last time. And then, but the grief, the grief, that sense of loss, so strong. But there's a reason, you know? It's not like it's a random thing. There was a cause for that. There was a condition for that. So, so how does the human heart, how does our human heart hold this pain? You know, the pain of loss, the pain of suffering, the pain of birth and aging and sickness and death. <sighs> Losing what we love, being separated from what we love, not getting what we want. You know, how, how, does the, how does the human heart deal with this? And it seems that this practice of equanimity, at least for me, this has been one of my primary practices. This is the, one of the practices that has taken hold in, over the years, and I've you know, worked very, very deeply with it because it's one that has worked for me. <laughs> and it's this practice of equanimity that can actually help our heart hold the reality of what's actually happening on this in this world and in our life, and that what I re- one of the things I really want to be sure people understand is that we don't have to be a fully awakened Buddha to experience equanimity. You know, there are layers to equanimity. There are many, many layers, and I see it. I see our experience like like an onion and that we're peeling back the layers of this onion. And when we're dealing with our own pain and our reactivity and our sorrow and our loss and all the reactivity towards that, we're really just working with that most outer layer of the onion. We don't have to get all the way to the center of all the reactivity that we've ever experienced in our whole life and lifetimes. But it's just, we just, it's just that moment where we experience ourselves getting reactive to something that's occurring and that there's some mindfulness of that. There's some awareness of that right in the moment. And I can say, right, I'm getting reactive. Let me see if I can let go. 
breathe and soften this resistance, this reactivity, right in this moment. And that's the practice of equanimity. One moment. This earlier uh, spring was speaking about the mindfulness and the equanimity, and that's how they come together. Because without the mindfulness, without the recognition of what's actually occurring in my experience, I'm not going to be able to respond in a wise and a skillful way. I'm not going to be able to bring my wisdom and my compassion to what's occurring. So if I say, oh yeah, my mind is really caught and I'm getting really reactive about this. Ah, Let's see if I can let go of this one uh, uh, expression of this reactivity. I may not get all the way to the core, but at least I can deal with what's occurring right in this moment. Another person was talking about waking up with a lot of pain, you know, and having a condition of pain. And one of the the first thoughts, you know, kind of being tired and groggy, you know, the first thought is, I hate this pain. You know, of course we hate the pain. You know, especially if it's something that's been happening for a long period of time and it's really painful, you know. So there's this kind of like, I hate this pain. And then the feeling of what that's, what's that like when I feel this hate? Because the pain is one experience that feels unpleasant, but the hate is another experience that feels unpleasant. <laughs> one is in the body and one is in the mind. And if I'm not bringing a mindfulness to it, if I'm not aware, then I can add another layer of reaction to the hate, which is already a reaction to the unpleasant sensations in the body. And then I can, get, I can be hating myself because I hate my pain. And then I hate myself and I judge myself because I've got shame and I feel guilt and look at I'm just such a mess and then there's more judgment and... The Buddha speaks about this as the shooting the arrows, you know, that, that the, one, the one arrow is the pain. That's because we have a body. That's because we have a mind. It's painful to have this body and have this mind. But he says we shoot the second arrow, and then we shoot the third arrow, and the fourth arrow, and the fifth arrow. Those are the ones that are unnecessary, Maybe we have to have that one arrow because we're human. But do we really need to shoot that second arrow? And that's the one we're looking at. That's the one we're working with when we talk about equanimity. But we need some kind of understanding. We need some kind of uh, mindfulness to know what that second arrow looks like, what that sounds like. What, well, how do I identify that second arrow? which is usually some kind of judgment, some kind of negativity, some kind of guilt or you know, reactivity towards what's happening. No. It's just the, the unpleasantness of our, of our experience. I feel really miserable. <laughs> I really hurt, you know, whether it's a mental kind of pain or it's a physical kind of pain. How am I holding that? And that's where the compassion comes along with the equanimity. You know, the equanimity is the, is the letting go of the reactivity. And as I do that, the heart is like, oh yeah, I really hurt. 
Yeah, and then, you know, it's kind of, we can just sort of, you know, rub ourselves or pat ourselves, rub our heart. Yeah, it's painful. It's hard here. It's hard in this experience. And we just feel that. That's what the experience is of being human, being a human in this life. It's so easy to begin to idealize how we should be. You know, especially when we practice these Brahma-viharas, you know, the purity of love, of loving-kindness and compassion and joy and equanimity, you know, and then we have these statues, you know, the Buddha and Prajnaparamita, you know, who are just, you know, so still and powerful and, you know, unmoving and nothing's bothering them. And we can start to imagine that somehow that's the kind of experience we're supposed to have. And somehow we're not supposed to be bothered. We're not supposed to have react, reactions. We're not supposed to even be shooting the second arrow. We can already pick that one up. Yeah, I'm not supposed to shoot that second arrow, right? How many people already had that thought? <laughs> right? Yeah. So like that something's wrong with that, you know? But, but it's so easy. We can so easily get into this idealization of how I should be in my experience. But another point that I really want to make tonight is that equanimity doesn't actually look a particular way. And I think we get deceived, I think we get confused by appearances. That if somebody's really, you know, still and quiet and unreactive and non-attached and, you know, not making a fuss and, you know, very calm and, you know, somehow that that's what it's all about. But actually, we don't know what's going on in that person's mind. We don't know what's going on in that person's heart. We don't really know how free they are or whether that's just a whole other identity, a whole other way of being. Equanimity doesn't look any particular way. In fact, the near enemy, the Buddha points out that the near enemy to equanimity, that's, that is what disguises itself as, that's what you know, appears as if it is, but it isn't, is, is, is called indifference. Indifference. Um, and it appears detached and... Uh, removed and somewhat withdrawn and unaffected, um, cool, very cool. <laughs> but it actually, there's still an ego self there. There's still someone who actually doesn't want to engage, doesn't want to really connect, doesn't want to kind of get into the messiness, doesn't want to really uh, get caught up in, in the realities of this life. Because true equanimity is fully engaged, fully connected. There's no way that it, there's a separation or there's a, a disconnection with what's, what's going on. There's, this is a kind of trap in this Buddhist practice, this whole equan, equanimous kind of uh, appearance. Because people want to look like a Buddha or, you know, be like a Buddha. And, you know, sometimes we can just kind of, you know, put on that pretense, but actually there's a lot going on, but we don't want anybody to know it. You know, we don't want anyone to know that, you know, we've got feelings or, you know, um, uh, uh, ways that we're actually 
feeling uh, engaged in what's occurring. So sometimes, you know, it's not, it's a, it's a, um, uh, a way of kind of can be bypassing. We bypass our emotional life. We bypass, you know, the kind of connection and engagement. And sometimes people even use the meditation kind of as a transcendence. You know, you transcend into altered states so you don't have to feel anything. But, it, you know, it's okay. You know, it's okay to take a break, but we have to return. You know, unless you decide you want to go live in a cave somewhere, you know, and not really uh, engage in ordinary life, we have to return. We return to the world. Even even monks and nuns, you know, it seems like they're often some, you know, the monasteries or, you know, the ashrams or what. Just have a conversation, a real conversation with a monk or a nun, (laughs) and you'll hear what's really going on in those monasteries, you know, what's really going on. It's like, it's not really, there's not really an escape. It seems that at some point, we're going to have to deal with our humanity in this body and this mind. There's a cartoon that I, I like, that I saw, where there's this monk who is in his black robes. He's sitting, looking out at this beautiful landscape, and the cartoon shows the back of the monk. But it's kind of like, you know, from a a landscape of seeing the monk sitting on this deck, looking at the landscape. But behind the monk is this um, screen with a painted landscape, and then behind the screen is just piles of junk. You know, so anywhere that the monk would look, it would be beautiful. <laughs> you know, but right, right behind is just all, all the junk. You know, so sometimes we can do that. You know, we can just put it aside. <laughs> and we need to do that sometimes. But it seems like it doesn't work for very long. Equanimity doesn't look a particular way. And it's also not a state that we're trying to arrive at. If it was a state that we were trying to arrive at, then it would look a particular way. (laughs) But the thing with equanimity is that it doesn't exist by itself. And this is what I'm going to talk about a little bit here. It doesn't exist by itself. Equanimity is actually wisdom. It's an understanding. It's a knowing that understands the way things are. It's an understanding, a knowledge that understands impermanence. It understands that things arise and they pass. They come and they go. It's an understanding that there is suffering in this world. There's suffering being in a body. There's suffering being in a mind. And that if I hold on, if I cling, I'm going to suffer more. It's an understanding that it's not so personal. I'm not the only one going through this. (laughs) We're all in this together. Right? It's part of our humanity. It's part of our universal connection. It's not so personal. I remember the very first time I was in a a group on on a retreat and I was listening to other people talk about their experiences and honestly it was like I never knew at that point that other people suffered. 
it was the strangest experience. You know, somehow I thought I was the only one who had a suffering existence. And, you know, I don't know how I, you know, believed that for so long. Because, you know, you have to, have to really be self-absorbed. And, you know, not looking out too much to see what's going on for other people. But it was really such a surprise to hear the deep suffering as people went around and spoke about their experience. And it was like, wow, I'm not the only one having these kinds of experiences. Which is really one of the things that happens for sangha, you know, happens for us in our community, is that we really start sharing the truth together. We start sharing the truth of our existence. So we bring this wisdom, the wisdom that knows how things are. And this equanimity, in some ways, is more of this kind of, this knowledge that is connected to the human heart of compassion and love and joy. The equanimity comes along with it and helps to ground the love. It helps ground the compassion. It helps ground the joy so that we don't get so carried away in our reactivity and our attachments and our desire. Because we know, because we understand that things come and go. It's not so personal. Equanimity all by itself, and, and you may have experienced this a little today, is actually kind of dry and very cool. It has a quality of indifference to it. It has a quality of detachment and being withdrawn. It's almost intellectual. There's almost kind of this very cool intellectual, things are as they are, things are as they are. <laughs> you know, no matter how much I want it to be different, things are as they are. You know, and somebody said earlier, it's like their, uh, they rem- remembered when their mother used to say to them, yeah, they're suffering, get used to it. You know, it's like, that's how it is here, you know. And it's almost like equanimity can have that, you know, it doesn't have that kind of edge. But, you know, true equanimity, it's very cool, very cooled out. So it needs to have, it needs to have the heart. It needs to have the, the compassion and the love and the connection and the engagement and the uh, joining with the compassion, joining with the passion of what's occurring. So it works together with what's happening here. So equanimity equanimity is this non-reactive mind, but there are layers to it. There are layers to it. And yes, the goal, it, it is the goal ultimately of this practice because it is where there, in the, the goal, of a Buddha comes to the end of all reactivity. The, the Buddha comes to the end. That's why there's layers, layers and layers and layers. And there is a point at which it all ends. Because the wisdom is so deep, the wisdom is so profound in the way things are, there is no more grasping, there's no more holding, there is no more rejection, there's no more aversion. And then that is the awakening of full Buddhahood, full enlightenment. Mm -hmm. Yes, that happens. But even then, even then, the conditions of this life don't stop. 
it's not like because the reactivity stops that everything stops. It doesn't mean it's the end of life. It just means it's the end of grasping. It's the end of the reacting to the conditions. Sometimes we think that the conditions actually have to come to an end. Then I can let go. You know, then I can, then I'm okay. Everything, nothing's bothering me anymore. But the world is still the world. It's still a suffering world. It doesn't stop. It hasn't stopped. It hasn't stopped, has it? I mean, not yet, since there's been an earth. You know, it's been a suffering earth. Somebody's being eaten, or somebody's dying, or somebody's being hurt in some way. So the conditions don't change. There's this um, story of this one uh, elder Ajahn Chah in our tradition that I want to read to you because I think it really points to this equanimity and really the, 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 the real feel and the quality of equanimity. And Ajahn Chah, he's not with us anymore, but he was a great, great master in Thailand. And people would come to visit and uh, throughout his teaching career, he posed a number of different questions to people who came. And the very last questions he came up with before his health deteriorated were in the form of a little series, have you ever seen still water? And they would nod, yes, of course, we've seen still water before. At the same time, they were probably saying inwardly, now that's a pretty strange question. But outwardly, everybody was very respectful to Ajahn Chah as he was one of Thailand's great meditation masters. And then he would ask, well then, if you've seen still water before, have you ever seen flowing water? And that also seemed a strange thing to ask, and they'd respond, yes, we've seen flowing water. And then he would say, so did you ever see still flowing water? No, (laughs) that we've never seen, they said. And he loved to get that bewildered look. Um, Ajahn Chah would then explain that the mind's nature is still yet flowing. It's flowing, yet it's still. He said the mind of awareness itself is totally still. It has no movement. It is not related to all that arises and ceases. In itself, it is silent and spacious. He said sights and sounds and smells and tastes and touch and thoughts and emotions flow through that stillness, flow through that space. Problems arise because the clarity of the mind gets entangled with these impressions. The untrained heart chases after these things. So he says, we train the mind to know those sense impressions as sense impressions and not get lost in them. He says, our practice is simply to see this original mind, which is already peaceful. Just this is the aim of this difficult practice. To know that which is already peaceful. 
I think where we get confused and where we get misled is that we think somehow we can separate the stillness or the spaciousness from the flow of experience, from the conditions itself. And then we try to go to one extreme or the other. We get caught in trying to make ourselves more still, trying to make ourselves more equanimous, being more calm, and try to reject or push away the conditions of life. And then we're caught in that extreme. Or we might go to the other extreme where we get caught in the flow and the movement and the activity and the conditions, but we forget about the stillness. We forget about the space. We forget about the peace that's here all the time. That which sometimes we call the ground of experience. And that they flow together. Still flowing water. Still flowing water. Like Spring was talking the other night about Prajnaparamita, the mudra, of how can we hold both? How can we hold what seems to be polarized or opposite? But yet that is what we are being asked to do. How do we hold? How do we, we know that deep peace, that deep stillness, and yet not hold it in a way that we separate or cut off or shut down from the expression of life, the flow of life? A teacher, Trungpa Rinpoche, also one time put up a, a white flip board, you know, big white chart in the front of the room of his students. And on the chart, he drew an upside-down V. So it was a big white piece of paper, and at the top it had an upside-down V in black pen. And he said, what is this? And so, you know, people thought, oh, well, okay, he just, it's a bird, it's a bird flying through the sky. That's all they could come up with, you know, this bird flying, th- or, you know, a V on the paper, but, you know, a bird flying through the sky. And, and Trungpa said, no, it's the sky with a bird flying through it. It's the sky with a bird flying through it. Because what happens is our mind can tend to get fixated on the conditions and we lose a sense of a space. We lose a sense of everything else that's here. We get caught in the thing or the particular, that, you know, that, I need that, I want that. But what about all of this? (laughs) What about the vastness of this universe, of this experience? There's so much here. I saw this quote, Fireworks do not disturb the night sky. Fireworks do not disturb the night sky. Now it's kind of like that. Now it's all happening. But there's that which does not get disturbed. That which is untouched, that which is unmoved, that which we are. We are that, the stillness and the flow the stillness, the peace, and the mind and the body that's moving and having experience and having responses. This is what we're trying to get a sense of when we're talking about equanimity. Ajahn Sumedho, one of another one of the great teachers in our tradition, he says that the mind is like space. 
There is room in it for everything or nothing. We always have a perspective once we know that space of mind, its emptiness. Armies can come into the mind and leave butterflies, rain clouds, or nothing. All things can come and go through without us being caught in reaction or resistance. All things can come and go through that space, the spacious mind. Armies, wars, (laughs) fires, conflict, love and joy and delight and pain and sorrow. I mean, all of it or none of it. Consciousness is so profound, so vast all moving, all coming through. This is what we're wanting to get a feel for. Otherwise, we'll try to get a particular kind of experience. We'll try to be a particular way. We'll try to mold ourselves into being something. But we don't yet have enough understanding. So we want to just keep letting go. Practice. Practice. Let go work with our heart, be kind, be spacious as much as we can. We, I think we said once, fake it till you make it. You know, Just really continue to in, involve ourselves with these practices and, and that which is going, are going to guide us and lead us towards this deep wisdom. This world, this world, the Buddha said, this world is really just these eight worldly winds. It's just winds blowing, winds blowing, Pleasure and pain, gain and loss, success and failure, praise and blame. That's this world, right? Blowing pain and pleasure, gain and loss, success and failure, praise and blame. Is there a way to just let those winds blow? You know, just let the winds blow and not have them, not, we don't, so we don't get so caught up in it all. This is the wisdom, the wisdom of the Buddhas. This is, I have this here. This is a little story. There was a well-known scholar who practiced Buddhism and befriended a Chan master. Thinking that he had made great stride in his cultivation, he wrote a poem and asked his attendant to deliver it to the master who lived across the river. The master opened the letter and read the short poem aloud. And this is what it said. It said, Unmoved by the eight worldly winds, serenely I sit on the purplish gold terrace. He was, he was proclaiming his attainment to the master. A smile broke on the lips of the master, Picking up an ink brush, he scribbled the word fart across the letter and asked that it be delivered back to the scholar. So it went back, and when the scholar saw this, he was upset and went across the river right away to reprimand the master for being rude. The master laughed as he said, You said you were no longer moved by the eight worldly winds, and yet just one fart you ran across the river like a rat. You ran across the river like a rat. Yes, many, many layers to our equanimity. (laughs) Many practices. 
it seems that we need a firm ground. And this is this mindfulness practice, our awareness practice, the sitting practice, the sitting posture. It gives us some kind of sense of a firm ground. Yeah. And the firm ground, it almost, it's, like, it's almost like I, I, I looked up this, the word for this because I didn't know what this was called. But you know those kind of plastic blow-up dolls that have the sand in the bottom. And then you can kind of uh, knock them over. You can, I guess some, you also can use them kind of as punching bags because they knock over, but then they come back up because they have sand. They're, they're grounded. They're firmly established. They're called bop bags. I didn't know that. They're called bop bags. So you can bop them, <laughs> but then they come back. <laughs> and you bop them and they come back. And it's a little like that, actually, we're trying to feel and know a kind of inner capacity and inner resilience so that when we get bopped, <laughs> yeah, maybe it will fall over, but there's some kind of ground firmness where whew, we come back. We can come back. And we're learning that the tools and the resources, how do we have that resilience so that we can be upright again? That we're not just fallen over and then, you know, we just fall into the hole and we're gone. How do we do that? It seems that the equanimity, seems the equanimity is, is, the, is the resource for us, the, the wisdom, the understanding, the ground, the firmness, knowing that place of refuge, knowing that place of peace, knowing that place of stillness, somewhere we can return to. We can return to and the space of our awareness that can just allow everything to move through. We're not so caught. We're not so um, uh, uh, bound up in the experiences that happen. Someone asked the Dalai Lama, this wonderful Dalai Lama, he said, um, do you get angry at the Chinese? You know, the Chinese government that invaded his country and a lot of torture and killing and the ruining the monasteries and trying to, you know, uh, uh, make Buddhism, uh, kill Buddhism in the country and, you know, just such devasta- devastation. So someone asked the Dalai Lama, do you get angry at the Chinese? And he said, almost not. <laughs> almost not. He said, there are enemies but we learn not to hold them as our enemies. There are enemies, but we learn how to hold them so they're not our enemies. Right? That's so, there's so much wisdom in that. It's not like there aren't enemies. It's not like there isn't war and there isn't destruction and there isn't suffering. Yes, there is, but how do we hold it? so we don't keep getting knocked over and tossed around and pulled around. How do we do that? That's what our practice is about. So this is why I practice. This is why I practice. The main part of my practice is to try to see if I can find some inner calm, find some inner stillness, which then connects me deeply with this ground, connects me more with the peacefulness so that there's more resiliency and there's more capacity 
the breath is probably one of the most valuable resources. Somebody asked about the breath and using the breath as a meditation technique, and I feel that it is really the foundational practice and one that I return to again and again. Also being able to know how to open so that I can feel more of the capacity to be with all that comes and goes. But the breath... The Buddha taught a whole practice called Anapanasati about the breath, just staying with the breath. And the breath is what helps us connect and calm and still ourselves in the face of all of this turmoil, all this chaos, all the difficulty. Thich Nhat Hanh, another wonderful master who is still teaching, he has some wonderful phrases when he teaches this Anapanasati practice. And I just wanted to say some of the phrases as we, as I bring this talk to an end, so we, we feel this kind of sense of the, the possibility of the resources for us to connect with this stillness, with this inner peace. And we, we can use the breath as a way to connect, to find that uh, ground. We begin, this is Thich Nhat Hanh, he says, begin with breathing in, I am aware, I am breathing in. Breathing out, I am aware, I am breathing out. Start with that. Breathing in, I'm aware that I'm breathing in. Breathing out, I'm aware that I'm breathing, breathing out. Breathing in a long breath, I know I am breathing in a long breath. Breathing out, I know I am breathing out a long breath. So, so simple, so beautiful. Breathing in, I am aware of my body. Breathing out, I smile to my body. Right? Breathing in, I am aware of my body. Breathing out, I smile to my body. Breathing in, I am aware of my body. Breathing out, I calm the activities of my whole body and release any tension in my body. Breathing in and breathing out, I calm the activities of my whole body and I release any tension in my body. Such a basic and simple practice. Breathing in, I am aware of the energy of joy. Breathing out, I smile to the energy of joy. Breathing in, I am aware of the energy of happiness. Breathing out, I smile to the energy of happiness. Breathing in, I observe letting go. Breathing out, I observe letting go. This is a pathway for us. This is a conduit for us to still, to still the mind, to still the reactivity, to drop into the layering of this equanimity of our peace, touching the joy, touching the happiness, touching the stillness of the Buddha right here, right now. It's not far away for us.
So let's just sit together for a moment as we breathe in and breathe out. Breathing in, I am aware I am breathing in. Breathing out, I am aware I am breathing out. May all beings know the deepest peace. May all beings be liberated from their pain. May all beings be free. May all beings be free. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.